It's the lens, it's the lens, it's the lens, gotta live diverse. It's the lens, it's the lens, it's the lens, live diverse. You are listening to The Lens Living Diverse, a podcast brought to you by the CNIB Advocacy Team. Join Nisha, Vivi, and I as we speak to individuals with intersecting identities who live with sight loss as they share their unique stories. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of The Lens Living Diverse. I am your host for today. I'll be doing it solo, your host, Ben. And today we have a wonderful episode uh, with such a great guest, and we're going to have a amazing conversation about uh, diversity and this individual is going to be sharing their story as well as sharing uh, their journey with advocacy and uh, growing up in the different identities. So very excited to have uh, this person on today. So everybody, I want you to welcome Elaine. So Elaine, how are you doing today? Not too bad. I'd like to thank you very much for having me on here. I'm very honored to be here. I was very grateful to be able to share my story. Of course. And we're very honored to have you on the Lens Living Diverse as well. So uh, let's get into uh, getting to the audience, getting to know you. So if you could uh, share a little bit about yourself as well as the different identities that you hold. So um, first and foremost, uh, I'm a, a woman. I'm also Korean. Um, my parents came here, uh, escaped from North Korea, we're pretty sure. And then um, they unfortunately were not able to keep me. And so I was put up for adoption um, at six months. Uh, I am totally blind. I have no sight of any kind. It's a congenital birth defect. So I've had it since birth. I also have two children. I'm a single parent. I have a 13-year-old and a four-year-old, and I'm also a guide dog user, and I'm also an advocate. I also struggle with mental health issues, and I am, like many blind people, I am probably over-educated and trying to find work. Definitely, definitely, and I know in the last few months, uh, me and yourself have been working a lot together when it comes to advocacy and in the the London community. And I know you're a big advocate in making change for sure, for accessibility. Trying to, yeah. I sit on a few different uh, committees. I am vice chair of the London Accessible Public Service Advisory Committee for transit. And I've been a member for a number of years, but in my most recent term, when I was reappointed, I uh, decided to go for it and try to become vice chair and I was elected. So I was quite excited about that. And in the most recent happenings with the APSAC committee, we put into place a pet policy and it's not, uh, it's not perfect, but it's something that I definitely helped to orchestrate. And I proof that policy to help ensure the safety and efficacy for all riders. Definitely. You're, you're doing big things. Shall, shall I call you Madam Chair for the rest of the episode? <laughs> no, you don't You don't need to do that. But um, no, and then I'm also actually a community, what they call a patient partner volunteer uh, to help with hospitals and the healthcare system in London. So um, sort of 
a patient volunteer helps with uh, partnering with different organizations and different working groups and communities for objectives that the hospitals uh, and the healthcare uh, initiatives have. And this person uh, helps to shape and sort of decide what policies go into effect, how they become executed and um, sort of what changes can be made to improve things for patients um, in the healthcare system. Wonderful, wonderful. As I said, doing such great work in your community, uh, for sure. So I'm just going to uh, move to the the first question. So uh, you made mention that you are of Korean descent and you were adopted by a white family as well as having sight loss. So can you tell us more about that experience? And I know a term, uh, well, I'll let you uh, bring up that term as well, and we could have a conversation about that. Well, the term that we're, you know, thinking and sort of uh, kind of bandying around but not wanting to say is, is gentrification and the idea that when a person from a different culture is brought up in another country, they take on sometimes they end up losing the identity of their home country and their home culture because when they're adopted by a different family of a different culture, they become gentrified. So they start to lose that identity. And unfortunately, in my case, that that did happen. I do know that was partially by design. I know that my parents, their intention to put me up for adoption was not because they didn't want to care for me. It was because they knew in the Korean community that it was difficult to try to raise a child who was blind and a woman. Um, I already have a, an older sister. So um, for uh, the Korean family, especially in that time, since I was born in 87, um, that time for a Korean to have a woman and then to also have a blind woman, again, mm. um, not a great idea for, for the culture. It would have been very frustrating for them. They would have been outsiders they would have, you know, their friends, they may have lost friends in the community. They may have also had difficulty integrating with the community. So I can understand why they did it. So like I said, it's partially by design. So they were hoping that I could grow up in a white family and I would be able to be afforded opportunities that I wouldn't have if I grew up Korean. Now, as an adult, I would say that I'm happy about it, but not happy about it. There are things that I wish that my parents had done more of. They always mm -hmm. were very open and forthright in telling me that I was adopted. They were open and forthright about telling me that I was Korean, but they never really encouraged me or tried to get me involved in the Korean community, even though I do realize that since I am blind, it would have been, you know, again, the idea of being an outsider um, and the idea of being ostracized is, is very possible. But obviously, a, a white family, it wouldn't matter as much to them as somebody who's actually Korean, which would be me. So, and I am full-blooded Korean. My, my Both of my parents were Korean, so I'm not uh, half. I'm, I'm full-blooded. So, anyways, um, like I said, I feel like my identity was a little bit eroded uh, just because with having sight loss, um, my culture has different views on how people with sight loss should be perceived. Mm -hmm. um, some of them would say they're, you know, a little bit old world and um, a little bit ancient. And it, it is true. Definitely North America has a more progressive attitude to that, which is great. Um, but at the same time, it's important to acknowledge that we came from that culture and how do we try to change 
that view in our culture, not just in North American culture, but in our culture. Um, and that's sort of why I am kind of sad that I never learned the language and I never got to really get involved in the festivals or parties or mm. activities or foods that my home culture would have indulged in um, because I, I never really got to be a part of that and, and understand that and sort of have it alongside my um, Canadian heritage, if you will. Yeah. And uh, what I find is the fact that you being completely blind, it adds that layer of seeking identity because you have for someone else who has sight where they could recognize people who look like them when they see them out in the community or they go somewhere and they're like, oh, this is a, a store that serves Korean food or a Korean store. So uh, if you could speak on kind of having that layer of sight loss, did that kind of add to you seeking that identity or lack of? Um, uh, I would say, I, I would say yes, uh, for sure. Definitely. Now that I'm an adult and I'm older, I definitely do. You know, I'm curious, like, I mean, in school, when we were given the opportunity to research a culture and research uh, another country and its customs and things like that, I mean, the first thing I did was research Korea and find out a little bit more. I'm still very, um, I would say, very uh, ignorant of, of really how it is in Korea. I've obviously never been there and I don't know that many people who are not uh, landed immigrants here who are, you know, who uh, were born in the old country and came here type of thing. Mm -hmm. So I, I can't say that I know that much, but like I said, I have tried to be open to the possibility of, of looking and learning. And definitely I'm always intrigued by finding out things. I always love how um, Asian fads and trends end up over here like the j-pop trend and the k-pop trend and all of that sort of stuff mm -hmm. it always makes me kind of laugh because it's like it's it's funny how um something that's so normal for an age somebody who's asian is so not normal for somebody who's who's not and uh it, it kind of makes me laugh when like i said when kids are jumping up and down to anime and looking at the the Japanese video games and you know new stuff from Nintendo comes out and and people forget that yeah you might play your Nintendo online with all your buddies but you know it originally comes from Japan and that's why the the art looks the way it does and that's why the the anime looks the way it does and my daughter is really interested in in anime mm. and, and stuff like that and I think that's great yeah and it's it's, it's such a, a beautiful culture too it's an amazing culture for sure and um even wondering like i know you made mention of you looking to to seek out that culture and starting to learn uh, more about it how have you been doing that recently mostly on my own sort of time and and energy looking on the internet um at at things i've been hesitant or kind of i guess a little bit nervous about looking for Korean social groups because I worry about the fact that I'm not able to speak the language mm -hmm. and I I don't they they could easily very easily tell that yes I look Korean but I'm I'm not um I always joke that I'm kind of like a banana I'm you know yellow on the outside but kind of white on the inside just because <laughs> of the way I was raised um and I, I worry that that would prevent me from being able to be really a part of a Korean event or festival. 
Um, at the same time, though, like I said, the internet is definitely a great place to start. Um, because if I can start talking with people, and I do know that the internet provides wonderful ways of learning languages like Duolingo um, and Babbel and stuff like that provide ways of learning the language. And I think that's probably um, when I have more time that because things are quite busy. So it, it's hard for me to, to do all of these things at once, but it's definitely on my list of things to pursue is I might end up learning Korean um, because I think that the best way for me to learn what the culture is like and what the people are like is to be able to speak their language and is there any any plans in going to visit um i have never actually like formally planned it um because i definitely wouldn't want to go alone i would definitely want to go with somebody <laughs> yeah. but uh but definitely i mean if i could travel and i had you know tons of money and i could just do what i wanted absolutely i would totally go there uh, obviously to South Korea, uh, not really interested in going to North Korea and meeting Kim Jong-un, but, uh, you know, yeah. But um, like like I said, the language is really the way into a, a culture as far as I'm concerned. If um, I may, you know, borrow something from Trevor Noah, I love Trevor Noah, the South African comedian. Yes. He is inspiration and his mother and him, he they inspire me. And uh, he often says that the reason that he has learned as many languages as he has is because that he believes that to communicate with the people, you need to speak their language. And uh, so I definitely agree with that because when you speak their language and when they realize that you speak their language, um, it, it really helps to bridge some of that, that awkwardness gap. I totally agree. And I know prior we were talking with each other about uh, the Trevor Noah book, uh, Born a Crime. And have you have you finished the whole book yet or are you still no, working on it? <laughs> no, I haven't. See, I'm almost at the point where like I don't want to finish it because I don't mm -hmm. want it to be over because it's just so I'm actually thinking of restarting it, to be honest, because I did start it like a long time ago and I'd love to go over it again. Um, just because he's such a prolific writer and he's just so brilliant and it really puts your life into perspective when you read a memoir like that because you know I think about the day-to-day -day struggles that I have as somebody with sight loss as somebody with mental health issues as somebody you know as a single parent and then I read a book like that and I go you know what my life is pretty darn good I am very grateful for what I have and I'm very thankful for the people in my life who have supported me like my parents, um, like, like I said, even though, you know, I, I do say the word gentrification and I do, I do mean it. Um, I don't believe it was intentional. It's not something that they, you know, intentionally did. They tried to do their best as far as they could be um, to, to, you know, make sure that I knew that I was Korean. They never tried to tell me that I was something I wasn't. And they also never tried to tell me you weren't adopted or, you know, you're, ours completely they not that they made me feel that way or anything it's just that they wanted to make sure that I knew who I was um and who I would be seen like to other people and by that I mean when I would go out in the malls you know or with my parents when I was little my mother used to love to dress me up you know I was the little Asian doll like uh you know almost the way Asians look when we're little we often look um, sort of that doll face, that uh, cute, you know, very, very dress upable, very photogenic, very cute Asian. Mm -hmm. And so people would see me and they would 
automatically want to pick me up and hug me mm. and try to bless me or, you know, tell me you know, and tell my parents how blessed they were. And, mm. and then they would try to bless me and tell me that God would heal me and things like that um, when I was little. And so my parents very early on taught me, you know, to say a handshake is, is great. I don't need to be hugged. I don't need to be picked up. And then, you know, I'm, I'm Korean, but I live, you know, I love my parents and they taught me that, like I said, very early on how to engage with the community in an appropriate and dignified manner. Exactly. And I find that that's the positive side of when we do speak of gentrification, where uh, you have to do it in the right way where when you're taking someone out of their culture. And I think of when people go to Africa and they adopt kids from Africa, bring them to this country as white parents. And the one thing I think of is it's it's not a bad thing, but it's very, very important to know that that kid has the opportunity to know their roots, right? And Absolutely. I, yeah, and I feel like what your parents did by not hiding or sugarcoating, uh, they let you know that you're Korean, right? And they could yes. easily, as a person who's blind, right? Totally could've blind. Easily... They could have easily, yep, yeah, yeah. Easily hidden it or tried to lie or, you know, waited until I was a certain age to tell me. But no, I cannot remember a time where I didn't know I was Korean and yeah. I was, you know, adopted. And yeah. that is the way to do it. And I agree, definitely the adoption of, of children, taking them out of their, their countries and bringing them here potentially for a better life is a great idea, so long as the parents make sure that they don't lose their culture. And that's the same with um, when you encounter people like, you know, Vision Loss Rehab or CNIB in general mm -hmm. is a great place where that can either be reinforced or not. And what I mean by that is when you encounter a vision loss rehabilitation professional and the, you tell them you're from another culture and they sort of open up that dialogue of, oh, um, well, you know, what, what culturally relevant things do you want this person to learn with sight loss so that mm -hmm. we can learn how to accommodate them? So if there's certain foods that we, that culturally you make, so, you know, in North America, it's not a big thing to, you know, cook a pig's head or something like that, yeah. but say it is in another culture, um, instead of the VLR person looking at you and going, no, we don't do that here. Um, if they're open to the dialogue of, okay, I may have never tried this in my life and I may never, ever want to try it again, but I will definitely do my best to help you accommodate your child so that they are capable of indulging in a cultural activity. Um, sort of like the Hawaiians and the Luau and stuff like that. That would all be something that uh, someone growing up in that culture who is blind might uh, miss out on if they came here and, and didn't have the appropriate people to support them to teach them how those customs are done and how that's done you know how is the pig buried and um, set a fire and all of that sort of stuff very culturally relevant things for them yeah and it's so important for that openness and you hit the nail on the head that openness of diversity and that openness of understanding people from a different culture so I like how you brought up with an iOS teaching people how to cook their own food or even with individuals who there's many cultures that eat with their hands, where if yep. South Asian cultures, African cultures, and to understand 
that that's the case, or even when looking at cane use or individuals who are guide dog teams, there's cultures who uh, have with dogs, dogs belong outside, right? And I'm that's not saying, right. And dogs are dirty creatures. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah. And that's and, definitely culturally relevant and understanding though, that, you know, people, some people will choose to sort of break that cultural barrier and decide exactly. on their own to, to, you know, challenge that. And so I have seen people who are of Middle Eastern descent who are more than happy to become guide dog users, but the way that they, they deal with them is different than somebody like me. Um, and it's, you know, as long as it works for them and it works within their culture, then absolutely it works. But just the idea that the openness needs to be there and the conversations need to be there. And the idea that, you know, a child, for example, who grows up as an Asian, um, even in here, yeah, they might learn to use a fork and a knife. But if you asked an ILS professional and you said, look, I want my child to be able to use chopsticks, then that's what they would have to teach. And regardless of their own personal views, they might, you know, they might say, you know, that's not traditionally what we, we see here or what we do here. But the, if the parents or the child indicate interest in wanting to learn that skill um, and be accommodated, that would be something that I think that an ILS professional has a duty to do. And um, most of them are quite open to it and it's great. And yeah. definitely I would not say that I'm, I'm not by any means saying that VLR is not. They definitely, um, most of the professionals are wonderful people and they are diverse and dynamic people who are fluid and able to sort of change with the times and understand the, you know, evolving identities that people have. And regardless of whether it's gender or cultural, um, so, I mean, my daughter is, is not a traditional cultural identity, um, for, for gender. She's, she's a little different and that's totally fine. Um, and as somebody of many different identities myself, I totally embrace all of that. And, you know, some, some of my friends, I do have some old world friends, um, you know, in my building friends of mine who, who don't agree with it and that's fine, but. Thankfully, she's my child and I can raise her the way I want. And I always tell her to embrace her differences. Exactly. And that's the beautiful thing, the support no. that you get from family and uh, parents support for sure. And uh, that goes into my next question of being an individual, more identities. So we have you as a, a Korean ethnicity, a person with sight loss or a person who lives with blindness and then uh, the fact she was a Canadian and then something else, you're a mother of two. Uh, yeah. So definitely with that combination of having or living with blindness and then being a mother as well, can you share some of your experiences with that? Yeah, so I have been a single parent since about 2009. And um, thankfully, I... I went through, like, I literally didn't know I was pregnant with my daughter until I was about seven months along. So yeah, it was, um, how did I not know? Everybody always asked that question. Well, you're pretty good at being in denial when you don't really want to admit uh, something to yourself. And I probably wasn't at the point. I mean, I was 22. So I probably wasn't in that mindset of, uh, yeah, it's possible that I could be a mother. But anyways, um, so I, uh, I went once I found out I was pregnant with her, though, I went full throttle into it. Um, it's just amazing, though, what uh, kinds of 
sort of people you encounter when you start this journey. And I mean, this is true of any parent, not just somebody with sight loss, but the sight loss adds an extra layer to it that sometimes doesn't factor in when you're looking at, you know, just any other parent. So for example, as soon as I found out I was pregnant, my doctor immediately gave me the third degree about who was going to raise this child. Was it going to be mm-hmm. me or was it going to be, you know, someone else? And how was I going to deal with, you know, situation A, if situation B happened um, and silly little things like literally the, uh, the, the question she asked me was, um, how are you going to deal with it when you're changing your baby and your mm-hmm. baby's on the change table and your baby rolls off the change table? And it was just like, okay, so think fast. And my answer was, well, I'll change her on the floor then. And uh, actually after a certain, like after she grew to be a certain age, that is what I did. And that's what I did with my son too, because it was the safest option and mm-hmm. I didn't have to worry about anyone falling. And then the amazing thing too that happens with parenting and having other sighted people around is the double standard that exists. So um, mm-hmm. I had some friends who would help me sometimes with the baby when she was little and, and also my son when he was little and they would put them on, you know, a, an elevated surface, like a kitchen table or something like that to change them. And they would go into the kitchen and wash their hands when the baby was on the table, you know, the babies, you know, one or two months. And mm-hmm. I said, I would never do that. I would never leave the baby unattended while I ran off somewhere. And they're like, well, we're just going into the kitchen to wash our hands. And it was like, but you're leaving the baby on the table. The baby has the potential to roll off of it. Mm-hmm. And it, like I said, it's a double standard because when you're sighted, you think you can keep an eye on all of that. Like, you know, there's no problem keeping your eye on the baby and going and doing something else. But when you're blind, you don't have that option. There's no, even though you do, because we have our ears just as they have their eyes, we can hear the baby and can, you know, you learn very quickly um, the subtle movements your baby makes and noises that they make. And, you know, you know, if you have constructed the area where they're being changed, you know, the certain sounds, like I can tell you what toys my son is playing with just by the sound of the toy. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it's not a noise making toy, I can, I, if I hear it bang against something, or if I hear him with it, I can tell you what toy it is without actually being able to see it. So mm-hmm. Like I said, it's a double standard because um, I've had children's aid called on me a few different times for different reasons. In all cases, they literally came, they saw, and they closed the file because there was no need for them to be intervening. Um, yeah, I had someone call in and, and say that my, my baby with my daughter um, was suffering from failure to thrive, which is a condition where a baby is not developing or growing according to... Um, their sort of developmental milestones. Not that the milestones are set in stone, but the idea of failure to thrive is that they're not growing and being uh, nurtured. So they're not growing, they're not uh, gaining weight, they're not mm-hmm. um, eating properly, um, they're malnourished, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, it was funny because when they did show up at the door, um, in at the time, I was literally in the in the midst of making baby food for her, yeah. and um, and she was coming back with my my dad, uh, her grandpa, from uh, from somewhere from a daycare. So it was hilarious um, when you know they came in and then they saw you know she had a crib and she was well fed and there was mm-hmm. absolutely nothing wrong with her. And like I said, the files have been closed. I have also been accused of. Um, letting her drown in a pool because I took her to the pool and that was the thing too is that yeah it's a pretty brave thing to do 
um, for even someone without sight loss. But because um, I didn't mention this earlier, because I don't, I don't like to try to boast, but I was a world-class athlete mm-hmm. and um, I was ranked eighth in the world in disabled swimming. Um, and I set many records. Um, I was in the 2001 Canada games. So swimming was something that I, I know very well. And so obviously when I had children, I taught them how to swim. Um, I did obviously enroll them eventually in lessons, but I started them off by teaching them myself. And um, it's interesting because in a pool, believe it or not, is the easiest place to keep track of your child Mm -hmm. because it's a very enclosed space and uh, you're, you know, they're not going to be able to get in and out necessarily easily, especially when they're little. So it's uh, actually one of the coolest places to take your kids when you are blind, because you can have pretty much full control over the environment um, if you're comfortable in the water. And so I insisted that my children be comfortable in the water because I am and because um, it is, like I said, water, water and children, very dangerous and scary if they're not. So it's one of those things you want to teach them quite young. So Mm -hmm. from the time they were both babies, I had them in the water and, um, you know, my son is now four and he goes in the pool now with his life jacket and he's able to, you know, move about and kick his feet and kind of wiggle around the pool and which is great. And uh, with him, I've been probably a little bit less paranoid with my daughter. I was very paranoid. I, yeah. I wouldn't, if she was in the pool, I literally was like right behind her all the time with mm-hmm. my son. He can be in the pool and I can be somewhere, you know, I can be on the side of the pool or just in the other end of the pool and not feel like I, I need to panic. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, like I said, swimming is, is very important, um, was very important, but again, the double standard of, um, a sighted person on their phone. And the hilarious thing was I was accused of letting my daughter drown while I was busy playing on my phone. Mm-hmm. I don't actually take my phone to the pool ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never have, I never will. Um, so it, it's kind of amusing when, people make accusations like that that are completely baseless because it's just like for one thing she wasn't drowning because she she would I would never let that happen and for Mm. two um I didn't even have my phone so um like I said definitely the the level of accusations and the sort of level of investigation that we get um for being parents with sight loss is is frustrating but the best way I've learned to combat it is to basically prove them wrong and to to show them um, and to be as open and non-confrontational, even though it is extremely hard not to want to lash out at them, because it, it is. It's very frustrating. It feels so invasive when they come to your door and they ask you questions that are just, just that make you want to scream. Mm. And I, you know, trust me, I wasn't exactly always happy when they were there, and I wasn't always thrilled to see them. But I did realize after thinking about it that to really make them understand who I was and how capable I was, the best way was to prove them wrong. And that's what I did. Um, yeah. And that's what I've done my whole parenting journey, basically, is is to prove everybody wrong in the sense that, you know, I always tried to make sure my children were well-dressed and clean, uh, always. And I was, I've been complimented many times um, when I've taken them to daycares or places um and i've asked you know i've asked the staff there you know is is she clean um is her face clean or is his face clean is his hair does he does he smell bad you know all of those types of things that that are important to me to make sure that um my child appears as normal um like uh, you know as if they had a parent from 
any anybody else and nice. oftentimes they tell me you do a better job than most of the people we see so um it's it's kind of nice when that sort of happens but it is frustrating to feel like you have to prove yourself more than anyone else um and you have to work harder than anyone else to try to to be the best parent you can be to prove to everyone else that you can do it exactly and then also i feel like the extra layer on that is being a single parent and having those stereotypes of being a single parent and then on top of having sight loss and uh, when you were making mention of changing uh, your son and daughter on the floor it reminded me of a previous guest where they were making mention of with parenting it's no real manual to be a parent and especially when you're a parent with sight loss and this is a person who came on our show previously sometimes it's just innate and you just figure ways out to do it and it's just so innate because that's your child right yep or you or you ask people around you like um Mm -hmm. my best friend stephanie who works for vision loss rehab she has been amazing in you know creative ways to accommodate me so you know when my daughter was little and we didn't have a lot of room um you know we had to we created a baby corral um and we used physical barriers like physical like furniture um, and large objects that she wouldn't be able to move to create a corral, a safe space that I knew that she could be in and not have to worry. And, you know, it was something that I hadn't even considered. Um, mm. And then also the one advantage to me raising children and also being a guide dog handler is that um, because I sort of proof my house for my dog, um, it it sort of helped give me a preview of what I might be doing for my child. So yeah. some of the same things that would apply, you know, small objects that you don't want them to mouth and um, or heavy things that you don't want them knocking down, stuff like that. All of that applies to children just as much as it does to an animal mm-hmm. that you want to keep safe and you need to sort of keep track of. So, um, but like I said, people, if you, if I didn't know the answer to something, Thankfully, I was surrounded by some great resources. And as a single parent, I had to learn to become quite resourceful, learning what community supports were actually available and how to access them and then how to bring them into like onto my side and to, to you know, become part of my team. And definitely when I was raising my daughter, I mean, I was involved with public health. I was involved with children's aid. I was involved with um, with Marymount here in London, and I was involved with with you know, as many organizations as I could. Nowadays, I'm involved with Safe Families Canada. Um, They're a wonderful organization that help um, try to help people in crisis and people like myself who are doing it alone, um, find the resources they need to provide their kids with the best life that they can so that they never end up in foster care. Um, So they're a wonderful organization. But again, I've had to learn these resources. It wasn't just something that came to me. Um, And so you learn very quickly how to ask those questions that elicit the best responses from the midwives, from the doctors, from the healthcare providers. You learn to ask and you sort of make them scratch their head sometimes because if they don't know an answer to it, you make them, you know, dig, dig deep in their resources and go, you know what, this is important. So why don't we look this up? And um, it's, it's very important to try to gather as many resources you can because you never know who is going to become to come in handy. I mean, for me with my, when I moved, cause I moved from Ottawa to London 
um, after I had my first child. And um, so obviously the midwife in uh, Ottawa wasn't around for my second birth. However, because we stayed in contact, I asked her um, what, you know, midwifery organization I should choose in London and which one she would recommend. Um, and like I said, resources and networking are all uh, like that's parenting, that's sight loss, that's mm-hmm. advocacy. It really seems to be a common trend. And the one thing I really enjoy hearing your story and it's it's self-determination because that could easily break someone's self-esteem and self-confidence being constantly told, oh, you can't raise a, a child because of sight loss or uh, CAS coming in and having these accusations. But uh, that's amazing. The fact that that's advocacy right there and educating the midwives and educating the doctors and having them see someone who's breaking ground. Maybe that's the first time they witness someone with sight loss raising a child and just collecting those resources and delivering them and being like, Oh, voila, look at this is how it's done. Right. Absolutely. I mean, when I, my son, uh, when he was little, he had a lip and tongue tie, severe lip and tongue tie that had to be corrected. And we had to go to a pediatric dentist to do it um, with a laser. And um, it was funny because when she was showing me the exercises I had to do to make sure that uh, it it didn't recur and to, you know, ensure that his mouth developed properly, um, she was showing them to me and she was saying, you know, I have these sighted moms come into me all the time complaining that how am I supposed to do these? I can't see what I'm doing. And um, so she said, now I have a, a very good, you know, not not a way to tell them off, but, you know, just I have a very good story for them to understand, to put in mm-hmm. perspective that, yes, you might mm-hmm. not be able to see, but this person lives with sight loss and she's capable of doing the exercises. So there's no reason why you can't either. Um, and she was quite impressed with how well I was able to adapt to the exercises and stuff. And definitely that was I was the first person she had ever seen who had um a baby who was totally blind and was the mother and had nobody else to help, um, you know, do the exercises and stuff. Cause they, they are, there's, there's specialized exercises of moving the lips and the tongue and, and stuff and bringing it up and down to, to teach the muscles um, how to move around in their new environment. Because obviously when the tongue is tied down, it's used to stay, staying close to the bottom of the mouth. And so you have to bring it up and teach it that, yes, you can go up to the top of the roof of the mouth and stuff like that. So it's kind of mm. neat. Um, but like I said, I've I've done my best to to try to blaze trails in a positive way and do it by just, you know, proving them that we're just like everybody else. And I know for a fact um, that's the reason why I chose midwives over an OB. Now, I will say that my OBGYN in my second pregnancy was wonderful because I was in shared care. So, but midwifery, I will tell you that as somebody who was blind going through it, they didn't treat me. They didn't see me as blind. There was nothing that was irrelevant. I was a woman who was pregnant, who was using their services. That was all that mattered. Um, And when it came to breastfeeding and all of that sort of intervention, um, it was funny because um, my daughter was born during the H1N1 pandemic. Mm -hmm. And uh, so she, I was sick as well at the time. I didn't have H1N1, but I was sick. And I brought her into a walk-in because she wasn't doing well or something. And the doctor had tried to tell me, well, because you're sick, you shouldn't be 
touching her very much when you breastfeed her. And it was like, well, how am I supposed to breastfeed if I can't touch her? Um, and I'm totally blind. I can't, you, you can't ask me to do that. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, just like I had a nurse when my son was, was uh, when I was in the hospital with my son giving birth to him, I had a nurse afterwards who again tried to tell me, no, you, he's not feeding, not because he doesn't want to, but because your hands are in the way you, you're, you, you have to let him do X, Y, and Z. And it was like, mm-hmm. yes, he, he does, but he also needs to learn how to work with me. And anybody who's gone through that journey will tell you that their babies have to learn just as much as they have to learn how to work with each other. And if it includes sight loss, then it includes sight loss. Mm, and yeah, it's definitely a journey and definitely aspects that a lot of people wouldn't know about and just putting two and two together as a mom with sight loss and and just learning uh, the fact that sometimes you have to do ways a little bit differently and have to be adaptable. So uh, that kind of goes into my next question. And I guess I'm trying going to try and wrap all your identities in a bowl, which I don't I don't think you can because it's so many identities and they're so dynamic. Uh, but even with having those different identities of being uh, Korean descent, uh, being a female, a person with sight loss, as well as a mother. And then we have to add in the world-renowned swimmer as well. We're going to throw that in there as well. Uh, with all those identities said, how does those identities represent your advocacy work? And I know you answered it throughout the, the podcast. When I'm on communities, I will say that um, I, I feel like I try, it has tried when I, when I think about the intersectionality of all my identities, I try to remember that everybody is just as diverse as I am, which means that when I'm on committees and stuff like that with advocacy, um, when people bring up things that maybe I don't support or endorse or, you know, agree with, I have to step back and realize that, you know what, maybe there's a reason why they're pushing just as hard for what they're asking for as I would for something that I really am passionate about. And so to poo poo them and just sort of be like, no, that's not, you know, that's not going to help anybody doesn't really work. Um, The idea of trying to remember that everybody is just as diverse as another person. So not questioning the reason why they're asking for this sort of, you know, thing, not, um, sort of poo-pooing a a suggestion or idea they might have just because it doesn't necessarily conform to the agenda that I might have. Um, It's definitely been an asset in in that way. And it's like being on the committees that I've been on um, has really broadened my horizons that way. Because I mean, before, yeah, I did very much look a bit through a lens, pardon the pun, of Mm -hmm. somebody with sight loss, mostly. Um, and so when people who had physical disabilities or hearing disabilities or intellectual disabilities would come up with certain things, for me, it would just be like, well, that's irrelevant. I don't see how that's going to help me. And then um, as I've you know, grown up and become more uh, sort of tried to be more open minded, I've realized that um, the addition of these extra potential, you know, things that other people bring to the table because of their backgrounds and their disabilities and their identities, that actually brings you to a much broader and better solution for everybody um, because you're incorporating everybody instead of just catering to one particular disability. And that's what I mean with accessibility and advocacy is trying to remember that 
um, we should try to think of an inclusive environment for all, not just an inclusive environment for the site, you know, the site loss community, the deafblind community. Um, obviously, there are going to be specialized instances where certain things will benefit them more than others. Mm -hmm. And that's totally normal. But like my daughter has an intellectual disability, which was something that I had never encountered or dealt with before. Mm. And so now when I, you know, do my work, I have to think about things as, you know, how would she be able to process the information? She has trouble reading and um, understanding information. So, you know, things I take for granted, um, that the fact that I can read Braille, that's great. But what if somebody is not able to read, um, you know, there's got to be another and but at the same time she's quite capable of interpreting pictures so mm. the things that i don't take for like the things that i ignore like icons for example or logos or mm. um on the disabled seating in the buses there is a a picture um there are pictures there's a picture of a person with a guide dog there's a picture of a person with a with a walker etc those yes. types of things that I would ordinarily just have been like, who cares? Why does that matter? And then, you know, it occurs to me now when I look at it, I go, you know what? That actually is really important. Yeah, I might not ever notice it, but it means that my daughter would be able to interpret it. And that's obviously extremely important. Mm, very, very good points. And uh, when you were talking about working off of a committee or within a group or having an advocacy campaign, and considering other people's identities, that really, that really resonated, because you don't have too many people making mention of that. It, and it's not like people just have their own agendas or anything. Uh, but I with the mentality human nature, sometimes we think about ourselves and our experience. And while you were saying that, I know back in the day, I used to be a Bugs Bunny, <laughs> Bugs Bunny cartoon. I used to love the cartoon. And it was this, this part of the cartoon where someone would like walk through a wall, right? And <laughs> it would create the outline of that person, right? Yes. And that's what yeah. I see with like, sometimes with advocacy, where we just, we walk through that wall and that's our outline, but we have to Absolutely. make- uh, outline bigger to fit everybody it's not just yes. us creating that yep. outline we have to not make an outline and just cut a big doorway through because we have to we have to incorporate all encompassing everybody's identities and how important and uh something that i also like that you brought up as well as when someone does bring up a concern or something on the agenda you're not prying and be like, why are we changing that? Why, 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 yeah. right? No, yeah. yeah. We need to give, if I'm allowed to have a say, it means that everybody should be allowed to say, regardless of, you know, and it is a struggle. Like, I will admit, it is a struggle. Like, um, I, I personally, like, with the deafblind community, it is a struggle sometimes. I, I find it very difficult to understand them um, because obviously, because they often, they've never heard before, obviously their speech is going to be different than, my speech and so sometimes that comes into play where I go you know it's really a struggle to understand them so it's not important what they have to say but that's so wrong and I've totally changed that you know opinion over the years realizing that that's absolutely the wrong way of thinking and it's got to be up to me to figure out a better way to understand them whether it's getting them to repeat themselves whether it's asking them to write down what they're saying so that I can better understand what they're saying because obviously what they have to say is valuable 
and important and reflects the diversity of the committee um, rather than just reflecting a few people who are disabled rather than, you know, um, and, and just reflecting a few people instead of everybody. Yeah, very true, very true. Now, very good points. <laughs> I, I honestly, every time I have a conversation with you, Elaine, it's, it's very profound. It, even as a program leader of advocacy, it makes me think as well. And uh, I'm glad that you equipped me with this critical thinking. It's, it's extravagant for sure. So uh, we are rounding up and I, I hate when we do round up because it's always a good conversation. I always learn something new from my guests. So if you could leave the listeners with uh, any last points or comments that you would like to share regarding your identities, advocacy, you as a mother, or even gentrification as well? Um, I guess really just, it's important to be open-minded. And when I mean open-minded, I don't mean just listen, but I mean, try to actualize what you listen to. So not just having something like a podcast on in the background and sort of, you know, zoning in and out of it, but actually listening to it and then thinking, how can I maybe try to apply that to my life? Or how could I make that help me to be a better person? Um, and definitely becoming a part of different committees and being involved in your community is a great way to um, sort of learn the identities of your community as a community and what makes your community special. And, um, and then it also helps you provide your own feedback and then, you know, inter mingle the feedback of other people and sort of come up with interesting and relevant solutions for community problems or, or any sort of community type of stuff. We are all, unfortunately, as much as I, I don't like to say this because I, I, I am very much independent, I'm pretty used to doing things on my own. We are community animals. We are community. Uh, we, we are always a part of a community, whether we want to be or not. And there are certain communities where you might want to limit your interactions. Like I personally will admit that I am um, only coming now into sort of the blind community and really becoming a part of it. And mostly from an advocate standpoint, I don't do a lot of socializing. I don't do a lot of um, recreational stuff. And that's sort of my, I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, that I'm okay with that as, as being part of myself. Um, whereas some people really like to do it all where they like to be involved in the community and they like to do, they like to work and play in it. For me, it's more work. And I will say that it's, it's important to know yourself well enough to know how much of yourself to give to a community so that you don't feel that you're not getting the right things back. So my last comment I would say is networking and resources are probably your, your best friends. Definitely. You never know, even if that person on the street that you talk to or you see one day or you have a tiny interaction, you never know if that person is going to be a huge part of your life. And you never know if a study or a research opportunity or anything like that is going to end up coming and helping you out later. I will tell you from experience that I did a research study with a group at McMaster when I was, uh, I believe in 2006 or seven, and then literally 10 years later, um, or no, I think it was eight years later, the head of that study, because I stayed in contact with him, can, um, hired me and recruited me to be the consultant for a research project. And that was only because I knew him. 
Um, and literally it was just because I knew him and he, he knew I had a keen understanding of the blind community. He knew I had a keen understanding of academics and research and that I loved this sort of stuff. And that was the only reason why it had nothing to do with him looking through a database of qualified applicants or anything. It was just because he knew me. So um, definitely you never know who is going to, to be that person who will hook you up with, with uh, you never know what. Very great points. Very amazing points. I am very hyped up for the advocacy that you're going to uh, bring up and I look forward to working with you in the future. So thank you for um, providing your knowledge and definitely we'd love to see you on the Lens Living Diverse once again. Well, I'm very honored to be here. Thank you very much for having me again. Like I said, I'm very grateful to you that you you wanted to hear my story and that uh, I'm grateful for you, the audience, for listening. And uh, uh, you never know, we might meet someday. Of course, of course. And then also, um, you better finish off that Born a Crime book eventually. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so I know. Could, so we could talk about it. We can it talk sure. about it. Yep. Excellent. So uh, thank you for listening to The Lens Living Diverse. If you like today's episode or want to listen to any previous episode in the past, uh, you could find us, The Lens Living Diverse, on your favorite platforms. Or if you would like to know a little bit more about diversity and inclusion in terms of sight loss, uh, you could visit the CNIB webpage, go to advocacy, and then go to We Are CNIB, uh, where we have amazing resources. And last but not least, if you have any input or want to be a guest on The Lens Living Diverse, you could email us at advocacy at cnib.ca. Once again, advocacy at cnib.ca. So once again, thank you for listening to The Lens Living Diverse. I was your host, Ben, and everybody take care. Peace.